Okay, we are live. Give me five seconds to make sure that we're okay on Rumble as well. So I can click the live link on Rumble and we will get started. Rumble, Rockfin. I mean, Rockfin. Let me click that live on Rockfin. Okay, great. We're all good to go on Rockfin. We are looking good on Odyssey and on Rumble. Hello to everyone that is watching us on Rumble. Hit that like button on Rumble, please. And to our locals community, the Duran.locals.com. How's everybody doing in the locals chats? And hello to everyone that is watching us on YouTube as well. A quick shout out to our moderators on YouTube, Peter. Peter the Great, how are you doing? Valley S. Great to see you, Valley S. And Spartan Warrior Queen. Good to see you, Spartan Warrior Queen. Thank you to our moderators for everything that you do. And William Justice is also in the house. William Justice, how are you? All right, we are good to go. We have the one and only Mr. Dima from the Military Summary Channel. Dima, how are you doing today? Uh, hi, Alex. Hi, Alexander. I'm doing well today. Uh, as you can see, uh, the situation in Ukraine is not so well as I'm doing today because I'm on the best ever show on YouTube and ever in the world, Did you run? And uh, you know that Ukraine still having such possibility to be in your show, but I believe that soon they're going to be here as well. And uh, the thing is that, as you know, uh, as you know, the situation in Ukraine is very diff difficult, and not just in Ukraine. We see that there is a lot of complicated situation all over the front lines and all over the world in China, in Russia, in Western countries with the situation with the banks and so on. But I believe you have a lot of things to say about this. And I'm going to talk just about military situation in Ukraine, about the my understanding of the situation and when do I think this war is going to be ended? Because I believe that no matter the things that we learn from this war, no matter the some benefits or not benefits we receive from this situation, anyway, we want this uh, we want this war to be ended as soon as possible Absolutely. because of Absolutely. casualties among civilians and so on about the polluted air, about polluted weather, polluted nature, nature and so on. Mm. And as we as we know that uh, if you don't mind, I can share the screen maybe for better presentation yes absolutely mm. before we get started absolutely. Dima and I pass it off to Alexander so we could get started absolutely you can you, you can mm. share whatever you want on the screen is there uh anywhere else that people can follow you outside of YouTube I have your link to your YouTube channel down below in the description box is there anywhere else that you I'm like using well? rumble as well so I'm using okay. rumble as well so okay yes, so I will place be, sure mm -hmm. okay so I will place those links as uh, as a pinned comment as well when this live stream is uh, finished. So Alexander, Dima, I pass it on to you and uh, let's get started. Absolutely. Well, can I just say, first of all, that it's a privilege for us to have you on, Dima. You are one of the, in fact, a key authoritative source about the, the conduct, the, sort, the, the, the progress of the war. I'm going to say that this is an extremely difficult subject for us to cover, um, on the Duran, we completely share your view that this is a terrible war, war that we earnestly want to see ended, the, the, the loss of life, the destruction that has been caused by this war is horrific. And you're absolutely right also. It is acting as a major catalyst 
in changes in the international system in ways that nobody anticipated, I think, when it began. Not the Russians, not the Chinese, certainly not the Western powers. Things have turned out very differently from the way everybody thought it, it would. And you can see everybody is unsure exactly where we're going and how it's going to end and what the world will look like once it's ended. Certainly in London, where of course I'm based, I've said this many times, there's much doubt, much unhappiness about the general situation, still solid support to continue the war from the political class, but growing doubts, I think, about pretty much everything else, about the economic future, about the political future, about where things are going. I think the war, however, remains the central event, as wars do, by the way. I mean, they are the, you know, the most important event that is going on. And I think we need to discuss the military situation. And you are perhaps the best person to explain it all to us, because, of course, it's very difficult sometimes to understand. So we're hearing lots about fighting in Bakhmut. We're hearing lots about fighting in Avdeyevka. We're hearing lots about prospective Ukrainian counteroffensives. One near Bakhmut, a much bigger one being prepared over the next few weeks, um, presumably in the south of Ukraine. You've covered all these topics very thoroughly. I remember that the last time you appeared on this program on, on our show, you were talking about the future Ukrainian offensive in Kherson region, for example. So. Perhaps the best thing to do before we get into the sort of you know, details, perhaps go into the weeds, is to ask you what you think the overall situation is and where we're going. And then we perhaps can start looking at the more individual parts of the very <laughs> complex picture, as you rightly describe it. I understand your question. The thing is that uh, if we compare the situation in Ukraine today and with the situation in Ukraine a year ago, this is two completely different Ukraines. And I'm not talking about the people and about the situation, political sphere. I'm talking about the attitude to this ground from other countries. When talking about the previous year, we were talking about the existential war. The Russians were saying that war in Ukraine is kind of existential war for them. And the Ukrainians were saying the same. But today, nobody talks about the existential war. Today, we hear just the talks about the weapon new weapon, new types of weapon. And as you know, today the Britain announced that they will transfer depleted uranium munition to Ukraine. This is terrible piece of news. And the thing is that Ukraine is no longer a place for some existential war. This is the place to test new weapon for mm. everybody. And for example, if we compare Russia today on the 21st of March of 2023 with the Russia, with Russia on the same date a year ago, this is completely two different Russias. And the thing is that modern Russia, a year after, is much more powerful than the Russia a year ago. And not because of uh, that they managed to survive under the sanctions and so on. I'm talking about the science. I'm talking about the military science. I'm talking about the difference between Russia a year ago and today. They have new weapon. They have tested new weapon. Then they received the most important answer whether they are able to fight against NATO and whether they are able to stand against the NATO and U.S. weapon. And the same thing we can say about the NATO countries in the United States as well. 
we we can't comp- we we can say that uh, the NATO countries today and a year ago is two different blocks, two different countries because now the NATO countries has the same answers to the same question whether they are able to fight with the Russians, should they be afraid of the Russians or not? And most of the answers is yes, we can fight with the Russians. Yes, we don't need to be afraid of them and so on. So it's completely different situation. And so now, as I told you, the most important thing is to test the weapon and to find a solution, how to uh, how to win this war. And for the Russians, and for the NATO countries. And I see that solutions that the Russians have today, they're better than the Western countries. And these solutions help them to win this war step by step, very slowly. And their slowest is not because of their can't penetrate defense orders of Ukraine. The thing is that they need to have more answers. They need to create better weapon. They need to be sure for 100% that within the next 100 year, there are going to be no problem with the Western countries. There are going to be no more existential question for them. And to receive this answer, they need to receive this answer on the battlefield of Ukraine. And when talking from this perspective, we see that since the beginning of the special military operation, the Russians managed to test all types of rockets and missiles they have all types of tanks, all types of armored vehicles that were produced during the Soviet period and that were produced during the modern Russia. They analyzed and understood what were the best investments and what was the worst investments. As we know, the Russians' missiles, Jagger, sonic missiles, is the best ever investments the Russians made since the beginning of its civilization because now this is the only not the nuclear weapon, but this hypersonic weapon is the only thing that maybe stops the Western countries to attack the Russia from all the sides. And for, when talking about the Western countries, they understood that they managed to, during the previous years, invest billions of dollars into uh, internet, into satellites, into connection, into everything, all these types. And since the beginning of the special military operation, the Western countries managed to test armored vehicles, their their trainings, their courses, their program of training soldiers according to the NATO standards. They managed to test their logistics. Now, as you know, the Western countries supply Ukraine with shells that are produced in South Korea. Imagine yourself, where is South Korea and where is Ukraine? So now the NATO can surely say that we have a perfect logistic because we are able to establish production anywhere in the world and supply any t- any point in the world with any type of weapon. And this is a very big benefit, a very big benefit for the NATO countries. Furthermore, the Western countries are managed to uh, develop um, to test their HIMARS systems. And now they know that this is exactly the thing, the type of weapon they need to invest in. They have tested... Uh, and many, many other things. For example, they tested their rockets like Harm, but they didn't provide any results. Those rockets that you, when you launch these rockets, and if they spot during their flight the enemy radar, they change their goal and they attack enemy radar. But we haven't seen the progress. And during the previous years, the states invested billions of dollars to to develop this rocket. And now they understand that this is like some kind of investment that were waste. And many, many other things. And now we see that there is a new um, area came has come, and now the Western countries are going to test their tanks. And not just tanks, but tanks that can attack the Russians with the uranium bullets, uranium shells. Yeah. So this is another step of war. 
This is another understanding of the necessity of this or that investments into military mm -hmm. science. And when we and when people ask me, uh, for example, how do I think when this war is going to be ended? Uh, from this perspective, I'm telling them that we are we are not going to see the end of this, this war until we see the real fights in the air between F-16 and Su-57 or Su-35. This is the at least this is going to be some kind of a flag. And as soon as we start seeing the battles in the sky between air forces of one and another country, real battles mm -hmm. as we used to see during the Second World War, this is going to be, we can say, or the final test situation or pre-final, because the final test is the nuclear weapon. And I hope that nobody is going to start testing this mm -hmm. weapon on the territory of Ukraine or anywhere else. And this thing tells me from from other perspective we see that there is some kind of military race it's not just a war it's a military race with the real battlefield where the countries are able to test their weapon their technologies their science and we see that the russians are pretty good in this military race with the nato block so people are saying that um, sometimes people are saying that russia the second military army in the world and they couldn't establish control over ukraine but Ukraine is supported by the NATO bloc. So we can say that NATO bloc is not enough powerful to stop the Russians. So it's the same logic, but people don't want to believe and don't want to understand this. But from the other side, we see that NATO country is very good at military science as well. We know that the United States started their own program of hypersonic weapon, and they're pretty successful. They're investing money, and they know what, they're what are they doing. They see the result of the Russians. They see what are they doing. And now we see some kind of, it's the first roots of upcoming greatest war, but not the hot war. I believe in my understanding of the situation that this war in Ukraine, in Ukraine sooner or later will be transferred into cold war of military race, another military race that we used to see in the previous century. And I hope so, because it's much more better when we are trying to develop science, uh, culture, and so on, than, than we kill each other on the ground or something like this. But also, this situation tells me, uh, when if somebody asks me when this war is go going to be ended, that we see that the Russians and NATO country has already been involved into military race. And we can say that like 50-50, they're both goes shoulder to shoulder. And as I told at the beginning, if we compare Russia and NATO with the, the, the same countries a year ago, this is two completely different instances. And there is one important difficulty with this situation. If we compare China today and China a year ago, we see that this is the same China. And, and this is the main problem for the Chinese. And in my videos and my channel, I'm telling the people that sooner or later we're going to see how China is going to engage and how, how they're going to join this military race. Not because they are they support Russia, not because they're against NATO countries, because they need to receive the same answer that NATO countries and United and Russia has already received. Whether their weapons are able to stand against, let's say, NATO weapon or let's say Russia weapon, they need to know this. And the only possible way how to know this, how to understand this, is to start the same race. So this is the reason I believe this all these meetings between uh, Comrade Xi and Putin is a part of, let's say, China land lease that we, uh, almost the same land lease we used to see uh, during the Second World War. But at that moment, there was like US land lease to uh, Soviet Union. But today we're going to see Chinese land lease. And today we know that Chinese have already prepared a significant 
significant infrastructure in Belarus, in Russia, trying to avoid and um, sanctions. Uh, they're, they're trying to, they have already prepared a lot of uh, industrial zones in Belarus. There are a lot of flights. They're bringing more parts. They're creating more and more weapons. Furthermore, even if we compare Iran, Iran with China, we see that Iran today is completely different Iran in comparison with the previous year. I'm talking about the military science. Even Iran managed to develop their own weapon, their own missiles. They managed to sign a lot of contracts with the Russians and they now they have at least examples of 235, 237 airplanes. They are able to understand and to build their own as they did with the drones. And even Iran is completely different country in comparison with the previous year. Yeah. And China yeah. see this problem. And China will start support the Russians because they need to get the answer. Whether they are able to fight. You may ask, you might ask myself, why the, the Chinese need to answer this question, the, all these questions? We know, and we I believe you discussed this uh, topic also on your channel, that uh, some... NATO of military authorities are saying that on the 20 feet on the 2025 or 2027 there's going to be another conflict in the vicinity of Taiwan and Taiwan region mm -hmm. and Chinese the Chinese they need to receive an answer today not in 2027 somewhere in the sea mm -hmm. to be destroyed by the NATO countries in one day and then to ask ourselves how did that happen they need to receive this answer today on the battlefield of Ukraine, whether they are able to stand against NATO weapon then near Taiwan. And they need to get this answer today. So this is about like uh, um, the answer mm -hmm. to the question about my understanding of this situation. So that's mean that this war is going to be, I don't know when this war is going to be ended. I don't know. This is an extraordinary answer, if I may say so, Dima, because, of course, it makes me, it reminds me. I mean, you know, I was a historian once upon a time, long, long ago, but it's always been my most interesting subject. But it's, of course, what you remind me, the way you've described it, is what happened in Spain in the 1930s, when the two major military powers in Europe, which were Germany and the Soviet Union, used the war in Spain in exactly the way that you said. They, they sent their military equipment there. The Germans sent their tanks. They sent their uh, aircraft. The Soviets did exactly the same. People don't understand that, but they absolutely did. They were testing their weapons. They were testing their weapons against each other. The Soviets redesigned their fighter fleets based on their experiences in Spain. So, you know, uh, fighters like, you know, the famous Yak-3, Yak I think it was, mm -hmm. that's what it's called, hey, the Yak-3 fighter jet was partly a response to the fact that they encountered the message mid fighter jets, the German message mid fighter jets in Spain. And of course, they, they looked at each other's tactics. They understood the, uh, each other's technologies. And of course, what that meant was that Spain was a precursor. It was a kind of dress rehearsal for what eventually became the Second World War. And I'm not suggesting, well, I hope not, that we're in a World War III type scenario. But sometimes, you know, a little bit of what you said, it almost sounds almost like that, that we're, we're heading towards a major conflict between the great powers and that the great powers are now preparing, they're testing their weapons, they're refining their military concepts, they're restructuring their armed forces. They're understanding what each is doing. 
and they're preparing for the much bigger showdown, which is to come. That is a disturbing thought, but it's not with that one without historical parallels. As I say, if you look at Spain, you can see that. If you go back further, by the way, um, before the First World War, to the conflict in Southern Africa, the South African Wars, what the British refer to as the Boer Wars. There's an awful lot of that as well. I mean, the British learned an awful lot about how those wars, how about modern wars should be fought. And of course, the Germans were also there too, to an extent that isn't widely known. And by the way, so were the Russians. <laughs> Again, or lots of things that people don't know about. There's rather a disturbing thought, but not one without historical parallels. And, well, is that why Xi Jinping is in Moscow now? It's, it's meetings to discuss principally weapons supplies, to discuss yes, weapons supplies, military, weapons. military thinking, sharing technologies, those kind of things. Logistic military technologies, uh, of course, the price, the payments for this, and... Uh, uh responsibilities of course and i be and you saw the picture you saw the videos and i believe you un we understand that there are a lot of contracts lots of documents have been signed or would be signed and i believe that uh when talking about ukraine they have an endless support from the western countries and this piece of news about the uranium depleted shells are telling that they're not going to stop and uh, the message from Moscow, we see that the China is going to provide endless support from their side as well. We are not going yeah. to see this immediately. Uh, we are not going to see tomorrow like uh, millions of trucks or planes flying in the direction of Russia with support. It will, it will be an ongoing process yeah. step by step. But as uh, the more the conflict escalates, the more supply and support we are going to see from China. And... When talking about Russia, we understand that they do need supply and support from China. They need support in finance. They need support, just the media support. Because, uh, as you know, and I discussed this uh, this situation with my uh, my people, that uh, sooner or later we are going to be witnesses of another mobilization process on the territory of Russian Federation, mm. and. Uh, uh, they, uh, the previous mobilization the Russians made in the, uh, let's say, in autumn of the previous year. And the Russians made this mobilization exactly at the moment when the Russians were changing their uniform. So uh, the Russians are trying to make mobilization not because of the situation on the ground. Of course, if the situation is critical, they don't have any other options, then they, they need to make another uh, wave of mobilization. But when talking about this special operation, the Russians are trying to um, the, to uh, use their resources wisely. So uh, they started their mobilization during the autumn period because that was exactly the period of time when the Russians changed their uniform from the summer uniform to, to winter uniform. And this is a perfect time because if you start mobilization, let's say in summer, you need first provide your army with summer uniform, then you need to uh, they you train these forces uh, according to the summer weather, and then you uh, launching this offensive operation these soldiers into winter. So they're completely unprepared for this situation. And now it's the March, the end of March, and the uh, beginning of April. The Russians changes and one more time their uniform from winter to spring uniform to summer uniform, and this is the best time to start another wave of mobilization. And some source, some Russian sources are saying, for example, maybe you heard about such a, uh, such a source like Rybar 
from the Russian side. He has already started uh, some kind of discussion about the possible mobilization and uh, some other uh, sources are saying that uh, during the entire winter period, the Russian the Russian industry was completely focused on on doing on pr on production of uh, uh, summer uniform. So they're going to start. But uniform is not, of course, the only thing that uh, determines the, whether the Russians need to start or not. They need weapon. And during the winter period of time, the Russians managed to save their army. If we compare this to different uh, period of time, the first one before winter, before, let's say, the autumn, after the greatest Ukraine offensive operation and after, we see that during the first period of special offense uh, operation, the Russians established control over Mariupol, they stormed the Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, uh, without any mobilization, by the way. And during the previous, uh, the first period, they managed, they lost, they had some losses. It's very difficult. There is no, there are no numbers all over the internet where we can find the real numbers of Russian losses, but we understand that they were. Uh, they lost some tanks, some equipment, and many, many other things. And later, later, the Russians uh, announced mobilization. And during the winter period of time, they managed to save the army. Because during the winter period of time, we see that Wagnerians was the only force on uh, from the Russian side who made active, uh, active some actions on the front line. They were storming Bakhmut, and they continue doing this right now. And as we know, Bakhmut have already appeared in some kind of operational encirclement. Some sources are saying that this already tactical encirclement. Some sources are calling this situation as a cauldron because Ukrainian forces are completely blocked inside of this town and they are no longer able to unblock their forces there. Some sources are saying that there are around 10 or 20,000 soldiers inside of Bakhmut. So that's a lot. Believe me, it's 20,000 soldiers to be to get blocked inside the town to lose just because you haven't mm -hmm. uh, managed to get them out uh, at the time you need it and now you need to unblock them mm -hmm. furthermore the ukrainians are saying that they continue accumulation of the forces on the line between slavyansk and kramatorsk for unblocking operation and and according to the ukrainian sources the only barrier that stops the ukrainians before this unblocking operation is the weather it's the mm -hmm. south of ukraine it's already a spring and the weather is very bad there and the quality of the ground is very poor so that's why the ukrainians can't use the broad front lines attack to penetrate the wagnerians defense orders to push them back or at least to cut them from supply and support from the mainland so the thing is that during the winter period of time we see that the main actions took uh, made wagnerians and they had the main losses of course there there is a very heavy clashes on liman front line near Kriminaya forest the russians are trying to push mm -hmm. the ukrainians back from the from the Liman bridgehead on the um, on the Ukrainian side of Siversky Danius River. And you see that this war started a year ago and we are still continue talking about Siversky Danius River and the forest. If you remember when the was a retreat process of the Ukrainians uh, from the Lysychansk, if you remember my idea that I suggested the Ukrainians to uh, to step back through the same forest and that was a crazy idea. <laughs> we discussed this in the previous previous show if you remember and now uh, there is the same clashes in the same forest there are very heavy clashes in Avdiivka, and this is the second area where the russians yeah. opened another let's say the front line but as i understand and according to my information according to data i have this is not the final attack from the russian side it's the same tactic as we used to see from the ukrainian side first they were attacking 
in Kherson, then they attack in Kharkiv, then they repeat their attack in Kherson there. So usually when talking about the military science, there should be at least three waves of attack in different directions. And the main goal is to stretch the enemy's reserve. So the Russians started the first attack mm -hmm. in Bakhmut during the winter period of time. Now is the beginning of the spring and the Russians started encirclement of Avdiivka. And we can obviously tell that Avdiivka has already appeared in operational encirclement as well. And uh, so now there are two encirclements on the battlefield. And I expect that the Russians are going to make another third attack. And uh, the way the Russians are going to determine which to use for another attack depends on the Ukrainian decision which reserves to use to unblock Avdiivka and Bakhmut. For example, uh, it, it doesn't mean that the Russians have just one plan. I think that the Russians have maybe 10 documents or 10 plans to attack from many sides and from the border with Belarus and in Kharkiv and Chernigov and, and even Odessa and, and even Transnistania, a lot of places. The thing is where the Ukrainians are going to use reserves to unblock forces in Avdiivka and Bakhmut. And we know that Ukrainians are no longer able to use reserves that were accumulated in the vicinity of Zaporozhye because Zaporozhye is completely prepaid action from the Western countries. They are planning, they were planning this operation uh, in the south of Zaporozhye since the beginning of special operation to push the Russians from Zaporozhye to return control over the nuclear power plant, to cut the supply roads and to show media victory from the Western countries. So that's why I don't think that Zelensky are able to get some reserves from Zaporozhye. Mm. Furthermore, by the way, if you know, uh, now there are clashes in Bakhmut and the for example, uh, there is a Sirsky, the head of infantry army of Ukraine. He is responsible for defense of Bakhmut. And this is the same person who was responsible for the same def defense of Dibaltsevo in 2015 when the Russians, <laughs> when this situation just started. And as you know, uh, in 2015, uh, the same commander appeared in the cauldron in Dibaltsevo. And now, after let's say eight years, the same commander appeared there almost in the same situation in Bakhmut. Maybe he wants yeah. some kind of revenge from his side to, to, I don't know, to, to tell us, to show somebody to something. Mm -hmm. But we see that Ukrainians have significant losses just because of the fact that they are planning, trying to hold the town that nobody needs. But do you, I mean, I, I didn't know about Sirsky being the commander of Tabalsov. I have to say, I mean, if I was a Ukrainian and I knew that, that wouldn't inspire me. I mean, I remember that battle very, very well. I, not the military aspects of it, but the political effects. And I mean, that didn't seem to me like a well-managed battle from a Ukrainian point of view at all. And that's putting it mildly. Do you think there is going to be an attempt to unblock Bakhmut? Do you think there is going to, I mean, do you think the Ukrainians are going to do it? Because I, I've seen some people skeptical that they can actually, that their forces are too stretched uh, along you the know, front lines and, and that, they, that the political imperative to carry out this offensive in Zaporozhye is too strong, as you said, for them to divert enough troops to make a really effective push in Bakhmut and those sorts of places. The thing is that the, the Ukrainians, at least uh, before the Russians started their storm operation or encirclement operation of Avdiivka, before that, the Ukrainians were planning to start unblocking operation. They were planning because around, let's say, from 10 to 20,000 soldiers are stuck inside of Bakhmut. It's around five brigades. 
experienced brigades, 20,000 soldiers. It's a very powerful army. And if they don't stop unblocking operation, they will lose the entire core, the entire military core. And it's, it's going to be disaster. And I'm not sure that Ukrainians are able to even to survive after such a loss. So that's why they were planning to unblock. And everything was almost ready to start the unblocking operation. But according to the Ukrainian sources, the weather was the barrier that stopped the Ukrainians before doing that. And this week, this week, the Ukrainians were planning to do this. In, in two days, they, every single day, we receive, we receive a piece of news from the Ukrainian sources. There's tomorrow, in two days, in four days, they are going to start, they're going to start, they're going to start. And by the way, if the Ukrainians are saying, usually they're doing this, we can, yeah. at least uh, from the past, we see that they were saying about counter-offensive operation in August, and they started this offensive operation in August exactly. So there is, so we can believe the Ukrainians, at least what they're saying about offensive operation, because in the past, they, they didn't lie us. So if they're saying that they're planning to start and blocking operation, so we I think that we need to believe that. But the Russians started their offensive operation of Dievka. And when the Ukrainians were trying to slow down the Russians in the vicinity of Bakhmut, they were forced to bring strategical reserves from all over the front line. They moved the reserves from Ugledar. They moved the reserves from Marinka, from Avdeevka, from Taretsk, New York, from Seversk, from Kriminaya, from Liman, from Kharkiv. They were trying to collect their forces from the entire Ukraine and to send them to Slavins and Kramatorsk with one purpose. First, to slow down the Russians and then to unblock Bakhmut. So that was their goal. But then suddenly the Russians started their offensive operation in Avdiivka. And now the Ukrainians need to take a decision where they are able, where are they able to take more reserves, but now to unblock Avdiivka. And they understand that there are pos there are pos there are few possible areas that Ukrainians are able to use for unblocking Avdiivka reserves, I mean. They can use the Zaporozhye reserves. But as we discussed, this is completely prepared operation by the NATO countries. These forces are completely under control of NATO forces. They have they started preparation this, uh, this, of this operation very long time ago. So I don't think that NATO and Western officers are going to give the Ukrainians any reserves to unblock Avdiivka and Bakhmut. The second front line is uh, Uglidar. But we know that, if you remember, in the beginning of this year, there was a very heavy clashes in the vicinity of Uglidar. The Russians were trying to storm. and they, But as we know, at least the video and photo, photo sources are saying that the Russians were a little bit defeated in the vicinity of Uglidar. Yeah. I, I'm not saying, I can't tell you about the goals that the Russians were planning to achieve. Maybe that was the goals, just to reduce the Ukrainian army and to force them to, to fight. Maybe that was the goals, and if that was the goals, then the Russians are pretty was pretty successful, because now the Ukrainians understand that they can't take mm -hmm. forces from Uglidar as another let's say strategical area to move them in direction of Avdiivka or Bakhmut, because they in this case uh, the Russians can make another attempt, and now the Russians will be able to penetrate the defense orders and to establish control over Uglidar. So the Ukrainians, I don't think they're going to risk with this area. They will keep everything as is. When talking about Avdiivka itself, uh, the sources are saying that currently, in the, during the previous week, when this, this operation started, the Ukrainians had just 1,200 soldiers of operational reserves. 
From one side, we can say that this is pretty big number. But if you remember, during the battle for Bakhmut, the Ukrainians were losing up to one battalion per day. And one battalion is something around 500 soldiers, four or 500 soldiers. So that means that Ukrainians had of, of intensive, of very powerful, for the very powerful clashes, they had reserves just for two days. So 1,200 is just for two days of heavy clashes if the Russians take a decision to, brought, to uh, drop everything they have, but to take this town. So it's nothing. It's nothing. Mm. So that's why uh, if we are talking about Bakhmut, and now we are going to Bakhmut. We know that the brewing, during the previous months, the Ukrainians managed to accumulate some powerful attack feasts on Black Bakhmut. There are a lot of brigades. And now there is a question. There is some kind of decision. The Ukrainians need to make a decision or to start on blocking process with the forces they have, or to take some part and move back to Avdiivka and not to allow the Russians to complete, the, uh, to complete this encirclement process. And this is the reason why, and now this is the main job of Wagnerians, because as you can see during the previous weeks, like in, the, in February, in the beginning of the March, we saw a lot of updates from the Russian side. The Wagnerians took Paraskovyevka, Krasnaya Gara, Solidar, many, many other towns. Almost every single day we got another piece of news about establishing control over another town. But today is March, and we see that since the beginning, or almost since the beginning of the March, we don't see any progress in the vicinity of Bakhmut. And and this is not because the Wagnerians are not able to take control over these territories around Bakhmut. Yes, they're on the lowland, Ukrainians on the hills and so on. But the thing is that all this operation in Avdiivka was planned a very long time ago. And it's my, it's my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm some kind of speculation, but as I see, as I understand, it, it was a decision to make a small operational pause around Avdiivka, around, sorry, my bad, around Bakhmut. When talking about Bakhmut itself as the town, there are very heavy clashes inside the town. The Russians established control over the industrial zone in the north, on the south, and many, many other territories. They're pushing inside, but they're not developing their bridgehead around Bakhmut. And that is a that was a decision, someone's decision. Mm -hmm. And now the Ukrainians need to make their own decision or to move reserves to Avdiivka from Bakhmut or not. And I believe that within the next few days, we're going to see some activation from Wagnerians. And their main job for now, not to allow the Ukrainians to move reserves from Bakhmut to Avdiivka. They need to pin down these forces and to freeze those reserves exactly in Slavens Kramator. So to make another trap and not to allow them to evacuate from this area in the direction of Avdiivka. So we, we, with, with Bakhmut, we understand. There are two more front lines, Kupinsk and Liman front line, where Ukrainians are able to take reserves to, uh, to save the situation in Avdiivka. And when talking about Kupinsk, there were very heavy clashes since the beginning of the storm process of Bakhmut. The level of losses from the Ukrainian side on that front line is almost the same level as the level of losses of Ukrainians on the Bakhmut front line. 100, 160 soldiers per day, dozens of armored vehicles, and so on. So that means that the forces, Ukrainian forces in Crimea, are this, uh, also pretty damaged as the Ukrainian forces near Uglidar. So these two regions, the Ukrainians are, can't use the reserves from these two regions to send them to Avdiivka. When talking mm. about Kupinsk, there are not for there are not much forces at all. There are fields, 
and uh, the Ukrainians have already started preparation of another defense line very far from the border with Russia because they understand that if something is going to happen for them, maybe it's even better to step back to, towards more reliable position as much as close as close as possible to the railroad, to the Kharkiv and so on. So mm -hmm. according to the situation, we can say that there are no reserves, strategical reserves that Ukrainians can use to save the situation in the vicinity of Dievka. And furthermore, during the previous weeks, there were a lot of updates that Ukrainians started redeployment of their forces from the border with Belarus, from Sumer region, from the border in direction of Bakhmut. Uh, before that, they, they prepared the fields, they, they mined the fields, they prepared three or two or four lines of defense, and only after they sent the forces. But anyway, we see that Ukrainians are forced to weak some positions, let's say, on the border with Belarus, on the border with Bryansk Oblast. And this is exactly what the Russians need. This is exactly what the Russians need before their third strike. Because I believe there is going to be a third strike and the Russians are going to strike exactly in the area where they see the Ukrainians have their weakest position. Mm. Wow, that's very, very interesting. Can I ask a question? Because, of course, it's one that is constantly discussed here in Britain and in the United States. Why is Ukraine trying to hold on to Bakhmut? I mean, I am not a military person at all. I have little understanding of military affairs. And I say this, frankly, I've had to cover you know, this war, but it's something that is well outside what we in Britain call my personal comfort zone. It's something that is alien to me in many ways. I don't understand why Ukraine has clung on to Bakhmut so obsessively for so long at such heavy cost. Now, I've heard explanations. There are explanations I've seen from third sources that, you know, if you lose Bakhmut, it opens the way to places like Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, takes you all the way up to the Dnieper eventually, if these other places fall. Is this correct? Is this why they're holding on? The Americans don't seem to be happy. The British, I can tell you, definitely are not happy. They think that Ukraine has invested too much in the defense of this town. The thing is that there are a lot, we can find a lot of explanations, and I believe that all of them are going to be correct because all... Um, any of this explanation means some benefits for the Russians. And the most, for me, the most obvious thing why the Ukrainians are trying to keep and hold Bakhmut is because they have a 20,000 army have already stacked inside of Bakhmut and they're no longer able to evacuate these forces. So this is like the, 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 the explanation that located on the top. So 20,000 army. So it's tr well-trained officers. Furthermore, some sources were saying that uh, Sirsky it's, he itself were, is in Bakhmut. He's trying to coordinate the battle for this town. So this situation reminds me of the situation with Stalingrad during the Second World War. So this is the first explanation that on top, that there are a lot of forces that Ukrainians can't evacuate. As you know, there is just a short corridor between Khromova and Ivanovska, these two villages that are located on the west side of Bakhmut. And the distance between these two towns is just five kilometers. And the Russians control this area with artillery. They can't control this area easily. And they control. They attack 24 hours a day these stairs, trying to reduce every single unit that tried to cro cross these fields and mm -hmm. these roads and so on. So this is the first thing. Another thing is that the Bakhmut lo is located on the 
uh, railroad that we can say connects Donetsk and Moscow. So if you take a look at the map, you're going to see that Donetsk uh, doesn't have any connections with Moscow using the railroad. And if, and of course, nobody knows how this war is going to be finished. Maybe there are going to be ceasefire. Maybe there is going to be some peace agreement. I don't know. But no matter, let's say, if the Russians are not able to establish control over entire Ukraine or to change the situation, let's say, to put their own authorities, like their own like president or something like this, anyway, they need to improve their logistics, their industrial uh, things in the, in the area. And to do this, they need to take Bakhmut. There is a railroad that goes Gorlovka, Donetsk, Gorlovka, Bakhmut, Seversk, Liman, Kriminaya, Moscow. So anyway, the Russians will do anything, they, everything they can, but they need to return back control over this important logistic area. Furthermore, if the Russians are able to take Bakhmut, Seversk, Liman, Kriminaya, they will be able to improve their logistic and they will be able to solve a lot of mm -hmm. issues issues before the greatest offensive operation in direction of Slavyansk Kramatorsk. Of course, they first they will before they will need to restore the railroads and so on. But we know that the Russians are pretty experienced in these engineering things and they will be able to restore the bridges and, and the railroad within half a year. And then it will improve their positions and it will help allow them to continue their offensive operation to return control over entire territory of DPR and LPR and furthermore of Zaporozhye and Kherson region. Right. And can I just ask about Avdeyevka then? I mean, because what is the what is the importance of Avdeyevka? I mean, one hears that the Ukrainians use it to shell Donetsk, but does it have a bigger military significance beyond that? I mean, is it some place that is as important to the two sides as Bakhmut has turned out to be? Uh when talking about this area, there are uh, there is Avdiivka, and the Ukrainians, as you told me, as you just said, uses Avdiivka for shelling and attacking Donetsk, and the level of losses among civilians since the beginning of special operation is already more than a thousand people, I believe so, as a result of all these shellings, not just Donetsk but the entire DPR and LPR as well, just civilians under shelling attacks. So, of course, furthermore, the Ukrainians use Avdiivka not just to attack the buildings, residential area, they're attacking industrial area, they attack the uh, places that the Russians are using to supply the houses with the water, with electricity, and we understand that Ukrainians are not going to stop doing this ever. So, the first thing, the Russians need to keep the normal situation uh, to these people, because these people, I'm talking about DPR and LPR, they believe the Russians and they put on them. So they strike on them. So I'm they, they support them and they don't have any other options, by the way, because eight years, nine years passed since the beginning of this entire story. And they understand that if they are not going to support Russia, then they're going to might be a lot of problems because if the Ukrainians are able to establish control over DPR, I believe we are going to see another act of genocide in the world. And we are going to see this. It's like, for me, it's obviously. So this is the reason the Russians need to, they need to provide security or at least the feeling of security to the people. It's the first reason because, and for these purposes, they need to push uh, Ukrainian force from Avdiivka because the Ukrainians are using this town to to correct and to target their artillery system. Uh, 
The second thing is that behind Avdiivka, there is another big important town by the name of Pakrovsk. This is a very powerful logistic hub that Ukrainians uses to supply and support Avdiivka, Uglidar, Kurakhova, New York agglomeration, Taryetsk, Bakhmut, Konstantinovka. And this Pakrovsk is the town that's located between Zaporozhye and let's say Donbass frontline and all the places where we can see clashes right now. So without taking Avdiivka, highly unlikely the Russians are able to get Pakrovsk and Pakrovsk is a part of DPR. So according to the uh, Donetsk Oblast, the Donetsk region, when talking about the ex-Ukraine as a, as a region of ex-Ukraine or something like this. So anyway, if the Russians, furthermore, furthermore, uh, we understand that according to the Russians' goals, they are saying that they want, at least now, they want, uh, like, they want to complete one thing, to return control over DPR and LPR. So now, for now, this is the most important goal for them when talking about the media, at least they are saying this. And if the Russians want to return control over Slavinsk and Kramatorsk, I believe um, to attack these towns in front, like Wagnerians are doing right now, when talking about Bakhmut, is not a very good solution. Of course, the Russians are able to take any town attacking this town by in front, but this is not the question of whether they are able or not. This is the question of the price of lives they are going to pay for this. And of course, the Russians, nobody wants to lose the manpower. Nobody wants to lose the soldiers. Nobody wants to have problems uh, at home. So that's why the only solution I see is to encircle this agglomeration from the north and from the south. From the north, that means that the Russians sooner or later will be forced to activate their offensive operation from Kriminaya in direction of the Liman front line. And mm. from the south, the Russians need to attack or from Uglidar. But we saw the results of the previous attack in direction of Uglidar. The, last, the Russians, as I told you, was a little bit defeated in this area. And now we see a small penetration in the vicinity of Avdiivka. So from Avdiivka, the Russians can start encirclement of Kramatorsk-Slavyansk agglomeration from the south and from the west. So a lot of things, a lot of benefits. Lot this of town. And the most important, the spirit, the spirit of Russian army. The win in for Avdiivka is going to bring significant inspiration for Russian soldiers and for Russian forces, for Russian I don't know, population for, and not just for Russia, many, many other countries, you know, support Russia, Syria, Belarus, uh, China, North Korea, many, many other countries who support Russia will be inspired by this victory. Right. What about this offensive in Zaporozhye that we're hearing all about, which the West is absolutely fixated on? I mean, this is the the British media is full of it. The American media is full of it. Uh, uh, um, American officials are pushing it very, very much on Ukraine. I have two questions. Firstly, is this a bad idea? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's an obvious one. Because, I mean, you know, some people are saying that Ukraine isn't strong enough to succeed in this offensive, at least not to achieve all its objectives. And secondly, is this a case of the Western powers imposing on Ukraine strategic ideas, in other words, this offensive, which perhaps Ukraine might be better advised not pursuing and instead focusing instead on the defense of these places that you've been talking about, Abdeyevka, Bakhmut, Kremenaya, and the rest. As you know, as you know, uh, this is 2023 is pre-election year. Mm -hmm. 
The next year, there are going to be elections all over the world, in the United States of America, as far as I know, in the Russian Federation, and many in Ukraine, there are going to be elections. And the best thing that uh, the president or the candidate for this role can provide is victories. You know that if the Ukrainians are able to to like hold Bakhmut, of course it's a victory, but it's not a media victory. You can't go to let's say to the uh, Britain Parliament with the words that we managed to def uh, to defeat the Russians near Bakhmut, give us more money. I think that this is not the case. The case when uh, the Western investors can uh, support you with more money and weapon. And that's why I believe that these people, like leaders who want to, uh, they need victories and they need a voice. They need they need a noise around themselves. And to tell the truth, they need a positive noise. I'm talking about victories and so on. This is like the th first thing about the Zaporozhye area. Furthermore, I believe that uh, the operation, the, the greatest counteroffensive operation in Zaporozhye was created not yesterday. And not even the uh, year, the day before yesterday. This operation, I believe, was created even maybe somewhere in the August of the previous year. Yeah. I believe that the Western countries managed to uh, to think and analyze and to create this step by step plan. I believe that they have a certain plan for every single square meter in this area. I believe that they have every single soldier who knows or at least they know where exactly they will send him to do this or that. They have already de developed their spy network in this area. They have already, um, you, you heard this, you saw the situation with the drone that we saw at the beginning of this week or the end of the previous week when the mm -hmm. Russian uh, plane uh, dropped the US drone. And that this is also a part of this situation. Yeah. So they have already invested millions or maybe billions of dollars in preparation of this war the current uh, uh, the current support of ukraine with the modern weapon western weapon with abrams challengers and and many many other tanks leopards was the all these tanks were supplied by for this operation so i mm. i don't think that this is something stupid i don't think so maybe if um the western countries nato countries uh, haven't prepared, haven't haven't created any plan. Yes, in this case, that would be a stupid idea. But I believe that they have they they have something to show. I believe so because uh, they spent too much time to prepare, and they mainly concentrated on this operation. Mm. The question is whether the Russians are able to understand the plans of the NATO countries and to prevent all their attempts and to break all their attempts. Uh, I don't know. I don't know because no. uh, again, when talking about the previous experience, uh, the Ukrainians during the previous year, during the special military operation, made two counteroffensive operations: the first one in Kherson and the second one in Kharkiv area, and both of them were successful. So I don't remember any counteroffensive operation from the Ukrainian side that ended unsuccessfully. I don't know this; they, they were, they, we, we haven't seen. So that's why. This is also uh, something that we need to understand. And I hope and I hope that the Russians do have people, do have experts and do have people who can analyze and to prevent this counteroffensive operation and not to lose this territory. Because um, in, in other cases, it will be, to tell the truth, a little bit ridiculous because, you know, 
you knew about this operation since the beginning of the special monster operation and you haven't been prepared so it's a little bit strange could uh, be. so i believe uh, that uh, yeah it's it's going to be a very powerful attack from the ukrainian side i have to say just to confirm what you just said i saw the first discussion of this Ukrainian offensive in Zaporozhye region. I can remember it was on it was in September. <laughs> that that was when I first saw people talking about this. They were saying, you know, Kharkov, Kherson, these are important things, but the real offensive is going to come in Zaporozhye region to cut the land corridor. And you know that it was going to go for Melitopol and Mariupol. So just to confirm exactly mm -hmm. what you what 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 you've been saying there, let's talk about some of the uh, technologies, because like yourself, I am deeply deeply disturbed by this news about depleted uranium being mm -hmm. uh, shells appearing on the battlefronts, and I'm really shocked that my country Britain is the first country to be providing these shells can you explain to us can you explain to us all what these things do i mean i've heard some particularly horrifying stories about the damage the pollution that they can cause but what is their military purpose uh every type of weapon has uh, has one military purpose to destroy as much as possible of manpower mm -hmm. of your enemy so mm -hmm. this is the one, this is the only purpose of this weapon to destroy as much as possible manpower mm -hmm. of the enemy. But there is a few cases. For example, first you attack, and let's say you can wound the some soldier or something like this. But let's say uh, he's uh, he can be saved in hospital after this wound and something like this. But when talking about this type of weapon, the chances to survive, even for wounded soldiers is very low and even if they survive they can get got a lot of disease like diseases and illnesses and they will sooner or later they will die furthermore uh this weapon is very dangerous not just for soldiers but also for the territory so uh, by by providing this weapon the britain are saying even if we are going to lose this territory Let's say Zaporozhye, because I believe that they're going to use this type of weapon in Zaporozhye. If we, if we are going to be defeated and we're going to lose Zaporozhye, believe me, we will not allow you to use this ground for many, many hundreds of years because of pollution, of nuclear pollution on this territory. So it's, it's, it's a terrible thing, terrible thing. And this is the main thing, like to pollute the ground and not to allow people to use this ground in the future. Furthermore, to increase the level of losses among wounded people after the battle. And the second thing is the, the power of explosions and the power of damage that these shells are able to deal is significantly higher than in comparison with the regular uh, shells and the regular ammo. I, I know some people, and I, you know, I people with military backgrounds who see them as a significant step towards using nuclear weapons. I mean, I'm not suggesting that these are nuclear weapons, but they are based on nuclear technologies. They derive ultimately from the nuclear industry and um, that they see use of these weapons as a very major escalatory step and a very threatening one. 
And I have to say, um, given the amount of criticisms, the amount of claims we've had in London about, you know, the Russians using nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons and all that, it does seem to me deeply troubling that, in fact, it's the British who've taken this first step. Do you think, what will the Russians do in response? Will they just absorb this? Will they simply respond to this? Or will they escalate? I mean, do they have weapons of their own like this? As I know Russians, I believe, first of all, uh, we need to understand one important thing. And we can also find these examples in the past of this special operation. When the Western countries are saying that we are going to provide Leopards, that means that they are already on the territory of Ukraine. Yeah. When the Britain are saying that they are going to provide these types of weapons, that means that they are already on the territory of Ukraine. Furthermore, a few months, uh, months ago, or maybe a few weeks ago, there was a piece of news when the Russians were saying that they managed to discover or spot some kind of radiational signal in Odessa port. Furthermore, they reported that a few workers from that port uh, got some um, nuclear diseases, these things, and they was appeared in hospitals. So there was a few updates saying that maybe these types of weapons have already arrived on the territory of Ukraine. And when talking about Russia, when talking about Russia, of course, um, uh, the Russians, as I understand, are not going to use any types of nuclear weapon against Ukraine. They're not even going to use the same type of weapon as they call in English, uh, uh, depleted uranium munition. They're not going to use this. And even if the Russians are going to do something like this, let's say, let's call it like this, they will try to get these shells by some special operation. Let's say some. To, the, the easiest one is to buy these shells from some Ukrainian officers who are willing to earn easy money. Let's mm. say it's the mm. easiest explanation. Mm. Of course, I don't think that is going to be something like this, but anyway. And if even the Russians are going to do this, first they're going to get this weapon. And the worst thing they can do is under cover of some terrorist, let's say, organization like ISIS to send this weapon back to Britain, to mm. some, let's say, residential area and telling to the worldwide that this weapon got into the black market, then this weapon was bought by some terrorist organization and now you can see this weapon or your own streets or something like this. And this is the worst and maximum thing that the Russians are able to do. Not even yeah. with their own weapon, but just like to, to make a small warning that, guys, this weapon, can you can get your own weapon on your own streets if you're going to continue doing this. And also, it's complete speculation from my side. And to tell you, I, and I'm not even sure that the Russians are going to do this because there are a lot of people and there are a lot of organizations in the world who can do exactly as I told you, to yeah. get on the black market, to get this weapon for millions of dollars, the same ISIS, the same terrorist organization, and to bring this weapon back to Germany, to Berlin, to London, to France, and many, many other towns all over the yeah. Europe. And this is the solution. And believe me, this is going to be exactly like this. It's an absolutely shocking thought. And I have to say, we've already seen weapons supplied to Ukraine appearing in the black market. And adding on top of that, deadly weapons like these uh, um, depleted uranium shells is extremely disturbing indeed. It's a terrifying thought to me. Gosh, 
Well, I'm going to just turn now once briefly uh, to back to the meeting with Xi Jinping and Putin because we've had a whole succession of meetings. There was two meetings yesterday. There's another massive one going on today. The Prime Minister, Prime Minister Mishutsin, has had a meeting with uh, Xi Jinping as well. Xi Jinping has come with an enormous delegation. There's apparently going to be more talks before he leaves tomorrow. This is an enormously complex series of discussions. We hear there's going to be gas, uh, uh, that's obviously energy, food, science and technology, all of that. Then Xi Jinping goes back to China. Before long, he's going to be hosting Lula da Silva from Brazil, who's going to be in Beijing for five days. We've got Xi Jinping going to Saudi Arabia. He's talking with the Saudis. He's talking with the Iranians. He's bringing them together. We've had Lukashenko, who is the president of Belarus. He's visited Iran, Russia, China, all of these leaders talking with each other. They're not just talking about weapons, it seems to me. They're talking about lots of other things, too. Is this all binding everything together? Are we going to start to see more and more economic trade links, those kind of things um, starting to evolve over the next few months? years perhaps i believe that uh you know that we, we, we with um, people uh, of course now in the world there are a lot of camps somebody supports nato somebody yeah. supports russia somebody supports china yeah. western countries but to tell the truth you if we remember uh, 10 years ago we lived in a, in a very interesting world. It was a very nice time when everybody all over the world could get dollar and buy with the dollar everything and everywhere he can. We were able to earn money all over the world without any problems. And the stability of the previous um, world was supported by dollar as the universal payment method. Mm. And the most important with this dollar is that was your dollar you earned this dollar and nobody can take this dollar from you this is your this was the respect of your property on dollar and now we see the situation when there is no respect if you have dollar it doesn't mean that you will have this dollar tomorrow you maybe tomorrow will be you will wake up and you see that all your all your bank accounts are blacked and so on and you can't use this dollar. You were working hard mm. to earn this money, and now you can't spend this money. And I'm not talking about the Western countries because you haven't faced this problem. But we mm. here in this part of the world have faced this problem. For example, from my side, I was forced to change five banks in, in Belarus to find the bank that can receive dollars for some for some services or something, like, 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 like my earnings or something like this. It's a big problem for people. And of course, now these guys, Comrade C, Putin, they need to find a solution. They need to find another method of payments between mm. them, at least between yeah. them. And in time, mm. of course, we need to understand that sooner or later, European Union will be forced to respect this new payment method. And they will do this because... Anyway, this war is going to be ended. Everybody, anyway, the connections will be restored, and we are going to see the new, completely new world. But dollar is not going to be the only currency 
to for the payment exchanges information and so on so this mm. is the main topic the bank the world bank or analog of the world bank uh and and of course the payment method of course you, you heard a lot about the new types of currency um it's very difficult for me to translate in english i didn't prepare this topic for discussion uh, no. like electro electro dollar like um i don't know digital, how to call digi it. The, di digital, the digital uh, yes, currency digital yeah. dollar digital currencies this is the future this is the future and you saw the problems in the banks and digital currency is the future and there is one important difference at least from sources i read between the uh, current currency and the digital currency is this this mm. currency is going to be deposited in the national banks and no matter the situation with this or that bank this money is going to be yours and if this bank bankrupts it doesn't matter that you're going to lose all, all your money because you're not going because your money are deposited on the digital currency in the central bank so the revolution is going in finance it's coming sorry so this is this, the topics that they were discussing i believe so i'm sure you're right can i just say dima listening to you i wonder whether we're heading towards a multipolar world which i still believe and hope or whether instead we're looking at the battle lines being drawn for the next conflict <laughs> the next global conflict it seems to me it could go either way it's all rather disturbing in some fashions but i wanted to just thank you for coming on our program and sharing our thoughts now if you could stay there i'm going to pass on to alex i'm sure he's got things to ask and perhaps questions to put to you from of, course, our viewers. of course thank you mm -hmm. sure yeah, you want to do about 15 to 20 minutes of questions. Is that all right? Yes. Alexander right. Dima? Yeah. Okay. Yes, Let's start with, with Elena right there on the screen. Why don't Russia throw the UK ambassador out from, from Russia because of this well, uranium news? Well, can I just say, speaking as a British person, I'm very much afraid that we're moving in exactly that direction. I mean, as I understand it, diplomatic contacts between Britain and Russia have essentially collapsed. Um, I think the Russians probably don't want to see their ambassador thrown out of Britain. At least that's been the position up to now. But I wonder whether, from a Russian point of view, after an event of such hostility, that restraint will continue. I, I, be, I suspect that at some point we might even come to something like that. I don't know what Dima has any thoughts on this. Uh, the first uh, thought that came to my mind is it's just not polite from the Russian side. Uh, when uh, After I listened to Alexander, I developed my idea and my thoughts. And the first thing, why the Russians haven't thrown the ambassador of Britain from Moscow is the same. Uh, we have the same answer as to, uh, to the question as why the Russians still haven't make any warranty to arrest Joe Biden. It's the same answer. Mm -hmm. Why the uh, Russia ha still haven't uh, announced about uh, starting attack in Ukraine with the uh, uranium ammunition or something like this. Uh, why it's the, the question? This, the answer is the same. Why the Russians still haven't make any sanctions against the entire world, like Europe, and and no matter the no matter the Nord Stream where was were destroyed was destroyed, the Russians continue supplying supporting Europe with gas and oil through the territory of Ukraine. So these there is no answer. You need to feel the answer. You need to feel the Russian soul to mm -hmm. understand that all these events, all these things in the past that I just described is the answer to this question why the Russians haven't uh, thrown the ambassador of Britain from the from Moscow. It's not polite. 
Commander Crossfire says, I really hope Russia liberates the whole of Ukraine for the sake of the Ukrainian people and humanity, but I fear they will not. It's a question. <laughs> it's yeah. like... Well, it's a comment and the question, but I fear yeah. they will not. I think that's the... Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainians, Ukrainians themselves have not been brainwashed before this brainwashing. Uh, maybe there are a lot. There are still a lot of people. There are very good people. There are very kind people. Just take a look at the situation. And how do they love their country? Could you tell me any other country in the world who loves their own country so much? I don't. I haven't seen. I haven't seen even a single Ukrainian who was telling bad things about Ukraine. They love their country. They love their freedom. They love their everything they do. They love. This is a very beautiful nation. This is a very beautiful people. But at some certain point of history, a lot of people from this country were brainwashed. And as a result, these people were supported by the Western countries and they managed to take their power in their hands. And now we see the result of this situation. There are a lot of people who doesn't want this war. There are a lot of people who wants to continue this war. There are a lot of people who doesn't understand what is going on at all. And they completely lost themselves. Uh, I think that sooner or later, the people, these, the nation of Ukraine will understand what they want. What do they want? They will understand. And, at, and every single time since the beginning of this nation, these people were solving all their problems just one way. Maidan. And I believe that sooner or later, we're going to see another Maidan. But this is going to be not Maidan against the, another military corps or something like this. People, tired people will come to street and they will tell, stop war. And believe me, the next day, this war is going to be stopped. All right. From uh, Angry Warhawk, if NATO is dissolved, what will happen in Europe? If NATO was, sorry, what was? Dissolved. dissolved. Broken up. Yeah. Broken up. Broken apart. To tell the truth, nothing is going to happen. NATO, uh, we, people in the Western country believes that the Russians uh, sleep and see how to conquer the entire world. This is not true. They don't care about this situation. They, the people in Russia, they don't care about the what how people lives in Poland, in France. The only thing they care is whether they are able to get their oil dollars and to spend in France, in Paris, in London. But now they can do this, and this is the only problem. If there were no NATO, and what else? What there there is no anti-NATO from the Russian side. And do we see that the Russia collapses or the like allies of Russia? No. These countries continue their, 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 their survivance in the world without any block. So I don't see any problems without absence of NATO on the territory of Europe. All right. From uh, Marcus, will Poland enter this and will Russia if they end and will Russia if they take the West? Part two, will Russia one day seek revenge? on Britain's Navy for their role in assisting Ukraine to sink their flagship. The only thing you know that people uh, tell us about the Russians, that the Russians are always comes for their money. And it's about the question about the United Kingdom and the Britain. The Ru anyway, no matter the situation in Ukraine, the Russians will come for their money. 
for their investments and so on, and they will force to pay them back everything till the last dollar. When talking about Poland, you know that ambassador, uh, Poland ambassador in France uh, told us that uh, if Ukrainian Ukrainians loses the war, they will be forced to join. But later, the Poland authorities uh, said that we completely were not agree with the words of this ambassador. So nothing like that. But I think I think that if Ukrainians loses, and if the Russians continue their offensive operation, and if the Russians are able to cross Dnipro River and to get deeper inside the central part of Ukraine, there is a very high chances that Poland or at least some ally group in the head of Poland will be forced to cross the border and to create some buffer. It's there are very high chances of that. Very high chances. Hmm. Uh, Sigrid says, Dima, thank you for all the info. Do you think it's possible a dirty bomb is tried in Belarus? How would Russia react? No, I don't think so. Uh, you mean you mean that Ukrainians can use dirty bomb on the territory of Belarus? Belarus. I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, you know that that nobody wants to is the escalation of the conflict. Neither the wait NATO countries or everybody wants this conflict to be between Ukraine and Russia. Nobody wants this spreading this conflict uh, uh, on the other territories of other countries. Nobody wants the Belarus forces started their offensive operation from Belarus to Ukraine. Furthermore, as I told you in the begin a uh, few minutes ago, I uh, during the previous months I was forced to change few banks uh, to find the bank where I can I able to receive a, a Western currency. And this is also a benefit for Belarus for not entering this conflict. And I believe that a lot of Russian people are uses the Belarus banks for the same purposes. So I don't think that anybody wants to lose the current structure this is not a perfect structure but it works it's stable and at least uh, people can survive and people can cooperate and work together even during uh during this special operation during this war all right um ignaki says western banking interests are also represented in this conflict agricultural land investments munitions munitions telecommunications are just a few how can Ukraine approach a peace agreement in light of its Western indebtedness? Very difficult. Uh, I don't think that Russians will allow to save uh, aggressive Ukraine. So anyway, the most important thing that the Russians will try to, uh, to force during upcoming peaceful agreement, peaceful negotiation is peaceful Ukraine on the border with Russia. And the, and the most important, if it's possible, uh, the Russian, let's say, man, a person as a president of Ukraine, Russian speaking, who supports Russia, or at least who doesn't have problems with the Russians. But I don't think that it is possible to have aggressive president in the head of Ukraine uh, as, a, as a part of peaceful agreements. It's impossible, I believe. So and Russia are not going to go for this because they, as, as we see, this is the consequences of such aggressive president in the past in Ukraine. I'm talking about Poroshenko, who started his war even without being uh, adopted as a president of Ukraine. And the Russians are not going to go for this one more time. They need a peaceful president. And for them, it's the best if this president talks Russian. Yeah. Uh, John Ashley Smith says, what about the construction of a rumored three new army corps in Western Ukraine? These, uh, yes, there are a lot of, as you know, 
as you know, maybe you don't, that these days uh, the Western countries trains around 75,000 soldiers. Yes, this is a very short-term uh, trainings, courses, like five weeks, but you don't need to think that uh, Ukrainians take people from the street and then they're sending them, let's say, to Britain or to Poland for trainings. No, of course not. First, they teach these soldiers on the territory of Ukraine for a few months and then they're sending them like a final step to train them in the Western countries to work with the Western weapon that the Western countries are going to provide Ukraine for the next upcoming counteroffensive operation. So these three cores, course, is it, is it true? It's not a fake. The Ukrainians continue preparation of this uh, powerful army, but I don't know whether this army is already on the territory of Ukraine or maybe this army is still abroad on the, some training schools, training centers of the Western countries. But as soon as they will be redeployed back, the Ukrainians will use them in Zaporozhye and many, may, maybe any other front lines as well. So it's real information. Okay, from level 42, how much losses can the Ukrainian forces afford before they start crumbling? Some sources are saying, at least the Ukrainians are saying, that they have army bigger than um, more than 1 million soldiers. More than 1 million soldiers, not just about the soldiers that are currently located on the front lines. I'm talking about the police, about the all military forces. So million. And there are a lot of calculations, lots of talks from the Western countries, from the Russian uh, countries. Uh, everybody are trying to calculate the Ukrainian losses. For example, Ursula von Leyen. Von Leyen told us in November that Ukraine lost around 100,000 100, soldiers killed. Uh, during the, a few weeks ago, the, um, um, the state's military authorities reported about 120,000 soldiers killed. So as you can see, uh, furthermore, the Russian sources are saying almost the same number, 100,000 killed. Of course, there are a lot of wounded. And usually the ratio between killed and wounded is around 1 to 3 or 1 to 4. Of course, but um, there are also, when we're talking about wounded, it doesn't mean that these guys who are wounded are out of game. Sometimes Ukrainians are able to return them back to the front lines. So as you can see, if we compare the loss of Ukrainians uh, since the beginning of the special operation, they lost uh, like less than 10% of their army they have right now. Hmm. So uh, you know that when we, if we talk about the Second World War, uh, the Russia, the USSR, lost 25 million people so we can say that they furthermore uh, some western sources are saying that the ukrainians since the beginning of the special operation have already lost three armies so they have the army at the beginning of this conflict this army was destroyed then they have another army that uh, they managed to collect make some mobilization. This army was defeated in Lysychansk, Mariupol, Severodonetsk agglomeration. And now the another third army have been defeated and now the Ukrainians created another army. So I don't think that uh, it's they have reserves for more than few millions of people. The population of Ukraine it was before the war around 40 millions. A lot of people left Ukraine uh, after the beginning of the special operation. But I believe that they are able to mobilize up to 5 millions easily because the uh, the they are mobilized people from 18 till 65 years. It's a lot of people, believe me. So I don't think that uh, losses is the thing loss that losses is the factor that can start collapsing uh, the Ukraine army at all. I don't think so. This, as the Russians are saying, they need three weeks or maybe a few months 
after the Western country stops supply Ukraine with the weapon and this conflict will be ended. So the question is not about the loss among the manpower. The question is always about the supply and support of the Ukrainian army with the weapon and money. Hmm. What will happen to Galicia and Carpathia? It's, it depends whether the Russians are able to get there or not. So if the Russians are able to, let's say, to cross Dnipro River, maybe some of these territories will be taken by Hungary, by Poland, as soon as they see that uh, there is no need to support and uh, to keep Ukraine anymore. And there is a very big chance to split this territory one more time, as we used to see the same in the 18th century with Poland. They will do this. But I don't think that we are going to see such a um, big escalation. I believe that at some certain point of time, this will start negotiation and the countries will save Ukraine with some territory losses. I'm talking about DPR, LPR, Zaporozhye and Kherson. I don't think that Ukrainians are able to return these territories back. But I think that Ukraine as a country will be saved and will continue uh, existence on the map of Europe and the map of world for centuries and maybe thousands of years till the end of the of the world. Maybe I'm not talking about the power and the authorities. I think that there are going to be some changing process and some authorities will be changed by m- people who maybe b- more support Russians than the Western countries, but Ukraine will, will survive. I believe so. All right. From Elena, Dima, how is the morale among civilians and military in Ukraine? Do you know the same question about Russia? Uh, to tell, when talking about Russia, uh, people, the lives there haven't stopped. People continue their life paying debts, paying credits, buying cars, uh, and so on. Nothing changes. A lot of things changed for the families who, uh, whose um, part of the family was sent to the military operation. Uh, but uh, as we know, the Russians mobilized just 300,000 people before the special, uh, during the special operation, and they used just 200,000 before. And so that's why n- not much changed in the um, in, uh, in people's life in Russia. About Ukraine, of course, I believe you saw a lot of videos uh, of the new graves of Ukraine in, in every almost every single town of Ukraine uh, was increased by the squares that they were forced to give under the graves, hundreds of thousands of graves. Of course, the life in Ukraine has been changed significantly because I believe that almost every single family lost or a, par- a member of their family or at least a friend. I, I believe that there are no people in Ukraine who, no- who doesn't know anybody who was killed during the special operation. So, of course, their life have, uh, have been changed. But even though they still also marry, they still have kids, they do have business. So life continues no matter the special operation. Uh, Pirate Fish says, how much weaponry might NATO still add to this conflict? We hear how there is serious shortages, but wonder. You know that who who can tell you the truth about the uh, real uh, ammo and and about ammo depot and shell depot who has uh, what and what has. For example, uh, since during this year, for example, during this year, this is very interesting numbers. For example, during this year, to prepare the uh, this greatest counteroffensive operation, for example. Uh, the Western countries promised to provide Ukraine 200 T-72 tanks from Czech Republic, I remember. Leopard, 80 units. Leopard 1, 88 units. Challenger, 
or 14 or 28 units. Abrams, 31 unit, but the states are saying that they will be they will be able to send these tanks just the year the next year, and maybe Pakistan is going to send another 40 units of T80. So we can calculate these all these. Uh, tanks and uh, we see that during this year uh, at least during this stage of, of the year the western countries are going to provide ukraine around four or five hundred tanks and there was a very interesting piece of news i read in some russian military expert channel that the russians uh, these days are able to produce around 30 tanks per day I'm not saying I I so truth it's very difficult to believe this number just but just imagine. I think that uh, when he was talking about 30 tanks I don't think he was talking about production from the ground from zero. I think he was talking about modernization of fixing but imagine yourself 30 tanks per day. So the western countries to supply the Ukraine offensive operation in Zaporozhye are going to send 500 tanks and the Russians per one month are able to produce up to 1000 so to tell the truth very difficult to um, to believe this sometimes these numbers but uh, the numbers are saying for themselves like as a facts as well from uh, jet set that one russia has entered as far as dvorichna why uh, so could you could you repeat the question about russia, russia has entered as far as dvorichna why dvorichna. there are there are two Dvorichna on the special military operation, and both of these Dvorichnas are located in the Kupinsk uh, area and Kupinsk front line. One of Dvorichna is located in Kharkiv area on the Ukrainian side of the river, and another one on the Russian side. And the Russians, if uh, the question about these Dvorichna, the Russians, they need to secure the flanks, and one of the possible directions uh, on that side of the front lines is to restore control over the railroad that connects Moscow and Bakhmut and Donetsk. And Vorechna goes, and the railroad goes exactly through this town. So uh, they, of course, they need, furthermore, these two towns uh, is split by the river Askol. So they need to get this sound for many reasons. One of them is to secure the flanks and to push the Ukrainians on the other side of the river. And another thing, they need to restore the railroad connection between Moscow and Donetsk. And this railroad goes exactly through this town. Okay, let's do a couple more and we'll wrap it up from Sparky. Is it possible that Russia reabsorbs Ukraine? It was Russia until 1954. Then Russia won't need a puppet government since Ukraine will be Russia. I don't think so. I don't think so. To tell the truth, uh, no, they don't need this. Nobody needs these days. Nobody needs to conquer the countries as we used to see in the medieval uh, period of time when uh, when we, we saw a lot of kingdoms were trying to conquer another kingdom and so on. Now we don't need this. Nobody need this. The only thing the people needs is the common bank system, common currency. And uh, I think that, um, uh, let's say, the president that uh, speak the same language or something like this. If the Russians are able to establish control over these spheres of Ukraine life, currency, bank system, finance, taxation, let's say, uh, then they don't need to conquer Ukraine. They don't need to change the title of this country and so on. Uh, we... Today we have a lot of things how we can brainwash, how government can brainwash people's brains. 
a uh, lot of services a lot of schools and so on so it will of course it will take time but i think that if the russians are able to achieve these things in the in the 50 years they will be able to do a situation when the ukrainians will forget about the special operation and they will forget about the real reasons of this special operation furthermore they will think that that was uh, if the Russians, believe me, the Russians are able to establish control of Ukraine over these parts of their life, believe me, in 50 years, somewhere at schools, they're going to be, uh, let's say, exam uh, for students, and the question will be the reasons of special military operation, and the books will, would say, will say, like, the United States of America make military coup, and after that, uh, they're using the forces of ukraine the united states starts war started to war against russia something like this and russia because we know the winners rise the history so i won't be surprised if in 50 years we're going to see something like this yeah uh from uh from Ferenc, why don't the russians cut the rail air and road connections to stop the western military supplies get that question a lot uh as you know uh the russians started attacking ukrainian uh, energy facilities during the just af after before uh, the great retreat of the Russians or great regrouping from Kherson region. So it's autumn of 2022. So somewhere in October, if, if, if correct me if I'm wrong, the Russians start using their missiles to attack the Ukrainian energy facilities. And today is the 21st of March, and we see that Ukrainians still have electricity, water, and Imagine yourself. I'm not saying that the Russians are can't like destroy the energy facilities and the power plants and so on. They are able to do this, but you see that they're not so effective even against the energy facilities. Yes, they're effective. They dealt a lot of damage. I believe that the Russians managed to achieve significant success. Then they managed to help their forces on the ground. But when talking about the bridges that were built during the Soviet period of time, and believe me. During the Soviet period of time, they know they knew how to build like uh, bridges and dams and so on. I don't think that it's an easy job to destroy a bridge. I remember that in the beginning of the special military operation, the Russians attacked the bridge that connect Odessa with, let's say, um, with the South Odessa region. There is a bridge, and as far as I remember, the Russians used at least three missiles to destroy the bridge. As a result of those attacks, yes, they managed to deal damage but they didn't destroy the bridge. They just break some lines. And to tell the truth, I think it will take maybe a week for the Ukrainians to restore this bridge. And I'm, I won't be surprised that they have already done this. So from the economic perspective, this is not very useful uh, usage of investments. Yeah. So it's, they need, you need, or you need millions or thousands of rockets for these purposes. Or you don't need to do this at all. You need to find another solution how to cut the supplies from the Western countries. From a different perspective, we include all U.S. personnel as our fighting force, reservists, cooks, etc. How do we match up against Russia reservists, Wagner? To tell the truth, I don't have this that, this information, and uh, I don't, can't give you an answer to this question about Wagnerians. And to tell the truth, uh, these days it's not a very good idea to uh, to talk a lot about the structure of Wagnerians, at least for people who are located in Belarus in Russia, because according to the latest uh, laws that were adopted on these territories, is might be considered as a fake information. 
and that's why you can be punished for this heavily. So that's why I'm sorry that I can't answer you this question. This question is very interesting, but you need to understand me as well. I'm located, I'm located on this the territory of this country, so I don't want to risk. Okay, let's do uh, one more from Ricardo Afonso. If NATO can barely produce regular share shells, how do they produce uranium shells? Uh, they don't need to produce uranium shells. I believe they have stocks for these purposes and to support uh, one offensive operation. Another topic to test the weapon. They will bring uh, the number of uh, such types of shells as much they need just for this certain offensive operation in Zaporozhye. They will test the weapon, they will see the result, and then they will take a decision whether they need to uh, increase the production of these shells, or maybe they need to stop investments in this uh, field, and that's it. I saw a comment earlier asking, where is the uh, ICC, the Hague, now that uh, Britain's going to be using depleted uranium? Yes, oh, well. yes, where are they? <laughs> where are they? Where is we're in yeah, and, and was, it, was it the collective and was it wasn't the us and the collective west telling us for a year that russia's going to use a dirty bomb and russia's going to use your radium and russia's going to in the end of the day we get the uk providing the depleted uranium yeah. yes I, I, oh, i'm very boy. troubled i'm yeah. very upset Spark by this here's what and we'll leave it on this and we'll leave it on this mm -hmm. note we'll wrap it up sparky says depleted uranium is very dense and heavy so a small projectile can act as a large one the legacy sickness is an unfortunate and horrible side effect. Yeah. This is the disaster. And the most important that, uh, as we discussed, uh, there's a very high chances that we can see, might see this weapon on our streets, not just in Ukraine, anywhere else. Yeah. Dima, what do you think is going to happen to Odessa? The question on the screen right now. I believe that Odessa in a hundred years is going to be a very beautiful town. And I hope that everybody who this uh, evening, this day, joined this uh, great show will be able to visit Odessa, mm -hmm. to see its beautiful places, to see Russian and Ukrainian flags together somewhere in the middle of the main street and the NATO and US flag as well. And everybody is going to be happy. This is what I think is going to be with Odessa. It's a beautiful town. And I hope and I think that nothing is going, nothing bad is going to happen with this town, no matter who is going to control this town in the end. That is a good, uh, that is a good way to end this live stream. Yeah. Dima from the Military Summary Channel. I will have all of uh, Dima's information in the description box down below, as well as a pinned comment. Alexander, Dima, any final thoughts before we uh, sign out? Thank you to everyone that watched us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, thedurand.locals.com, and on YouTube and Telegram as well. And thank you to our moderators, Valies and Peter and William Justice and Spartan Warrior Queen and Zarael and Alan and Reckless Abandon. And am I missing anybody? I hope I am not. Did I say Peter? Yes, I said Peter. Um, I hope I didn't miss any of the moderators. Thank you very much for helping us out. Dima, Alexander, any final thoughts? Well, I just wanted to say thank you very much, Dina, Dima, and just to remind everybody to go to the Military Summary Channel. Uh, Dima provides the most extraordinarily detailed, granular updates 
about what goes on in this military conflict. And I mean, we've got a sense today of what a huge conflict this is and how many ramifications it has and how important it is. And can I also say that, Dima, I very much hope that we'll have you again on the Duran. Of course, of course. No, don't doubt. No, there's no even doubts about this. And I want to thank you guys for the platform you provide. You're the best platform ever. Uh, so it's the best opportunities for people, young people like me and for other people who has their own opinion and to um, to share their opinion with the people. So I hope that everything is going to be fine. I wish you good luck. I wish you the best, everything I can to wish you. And thank you, guys. And thank you, Spartan Warrior Queen, as well, for moderating. Thank you, everybody. Take care.